0: Okay, everybody, welcome back to the GIR. We're pretty excited to be back with you here. It has been an interesting summer, to say the least. Uh, as things continue to get more interesting, we've got a guest that will shed some light on that. So, my partner, Kyle, from the Golf Wire. Why don't you introduce who we have with us this week?
1: Yeah, welcome back, everybody. I think this is the uh, industry roundtable number eight or so, and we're delighted to have Jim Copenhaver. Copenhaver copenhaver <laughs> <laughs> it's i've already messed it up but uh some some people affectionately know him as jim k but uh if you follow pellucid they are kind of the industry experts at macro level data tracking and insights into our industry and i know when the whole we're probably sick of hearing about COVID, but when the pandemic kind of first hit we were all kind of woe is me and concerned that the sky might be falling on an already uh kind of troubled trends um but Jim, I think we'll point out there's sort of a light at the end of the tunnel and we had a June bounce and all kinds of things are looking good. But before we get there, Jim, could you maybe just take a step back and tell us about uh, Pellucid, what all they offer, what they do, maybe the Genesis story?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Welcome to
1: the show. Thank you.
2: Thanks. So hey, everybody. Um, As Kyle mentioned, uh, my name Jim Kay is probably the easiest. And uh, I started this odyssey in the golf industry back in 2001. So I had come out of consumer packaged goods Uh, where I had spent a fairly successful 25-year career. Uh, And as I looked at the golf industry, I thought a lot of the things that we used in CPG, as it's termed, um, as far as how you track things and quantify things and diagnose problems and opportunities could be applied to golf. And so I kind of flipped over into this industry and and got a very rude awakening that we had very few (laughs) information sources here and the metrics that I had taken for granted. And so we just started building them kind of piece by piece. So the first thing was we built uh, consumer survey data and we went out. And so that collects annually. How many participants do we have? How many times are they playing in in an average year? What are the demographics of that, you know, race, uh, income, age, presence of kids? And so that was our first product in the marketplace, a thing called the state of the industry. Uh, which today has survived. Back then, there were about seven different opinions on it. Today, uh, Pelucid is one of the last ones standing. Uh, NGF makes an attempt at it every once in a while. Um, And so from there, then the next thing that I kind of tackled was I said, you know, you need to be able to do market analysis. What I saw, and I was one of the first ones to say, hey, you know, there was this build a course a day. And unfortunately, the industry and everybody else took that to heart. And they just started building courses like they were swimming pools or dandelions. And at one point uh, we built uh, a course a day and one of the years, I think it was 1998, we built 400 courses in a year. And unfortunately what happened about that time, and you couldn't have seen it coming in fairness to NGF and everybody else. So they, they kind of straight line this thing on participation and frequency as around the era of Tiger Woods. And so they just projected the straight line out and said, hey, let's go build a bunch of courses. And as luck would have it, about the time that they were building and advocating that, that line peaked and started going down. Uh, And so it took a while to kind of stop the train. Uh, And so what I was looking at is saying, okay, we need to be able to quantify markets to say where is this imbalance the greatest uh, and to provide some direction to people who are investing in golf courses and saying, hey, build here versus there, build this type of course and not that. And so we built our second product, which was the Golf Local Market Analyzer. So in that, it's a a web-based software, and we deliver, we take the survey data, which is the golfer base. We take a facility database, which is the supply, and then we take demographics from our partner, Alteryx, which is where's the population growing, what, uh, you know, is affluence increasing, et cetera. So with the GLMA, as we call it, uh, we can analyze any market in the country, five-mile radius around a golf course from the comfort of your desk in all of about uh, five minutes. Uh, So then the third product that we launched into was I got tired of going to conferences and stuff and having people tell me when rounds went up, it was due to superior management, and when rounds went down, it was bad weather. Uh, And so I said, there's got to be a way to quantify this. And so our third offering was Cognologic, which was partnering with a company um, called Weather Bank, uh, who are weather experts, and we built rules around what constitutes a golf playable hour. And so, Kyle, as you and the Wire guys know, we publish every month uh, through your publication, you know, what was golf playable hours for the last month and where do we stand for the year and how does that compare against rounds? And as we get into kind of the projections of what happened in May and June, I'll come back to kind of weather impact. Uh, And, you know, being able to factor out if we had a bounce, was it due to weather? If it was, how much was due to weather? And how much of it is due to increased interest in the sport and restrictions on other things? So that's the four-minute monologue on Pellucid's history and and how we got here.
1: Yeah. Well, I I know everybody in the industry really appreciates kind of the data analytics approach you you brought to the industry. So... um... And, and you as you said, your summary that you send in each month is one of our more widely read uh, sections. So Cool. Appreciate that. So as you know, from where you sat maybe uh, on high or, or, or wherever, how did the pandemic look as you were looking at early data and, and take us through, you know, what you're calling the June bounce?
2: Yep. So as we kind of came into March, so I is based in uh, outside of Chicago. And so we were not ground zero, but we were pretty darn close to ground zero as Governor Pritzker shut down, you know, all non-essential travel on the 16th of March this year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so as you think about it, there were other states, I think Ohio led us, but, but there weren't many states that led us. And as far as the restrictions that Governor Pritzker brought, I mean, he, he brought the full truck. It was just basically, you should stay inside your house, and everything was off the table. It was like, do not go golfing, do not maintain the golf courses, you know, go to a grocery store, get in, get out, et cetera. So as I was kind of looking at that on the 15th of March, I started doing some numbers, and I was like, holy crap, and I was watching, to NGF's credit, they did a nice tracker of the various states yeah, and what the true. restrictions were. Uh, and so I'm kind of looking at that tracker and I know where the rounds are coming from by states because that's part of what we collect. Uh, and I looked at it in, at end of March and I said, holy crap, if this persists for the second quarter, uh, I tend to think in quarters, so think April 1 to June 30th, we're going to lose about 45 million rounds or about 11% of our rounds. And so my first writing on this thing was if this map, as we know it, on 4-1 persists till the end of the quarter, we're going to lose about 11% of our rounds. Uh, And so I was kind of sitting there. Uh, What we saw was uh, by the end of April, our neighbor states of Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota had all opened up um, and Illinois was late to the game. Uh, We didn't get there until like the second week in May. But the encouraging sign was the states came back. Faster than I thought they would. The other encouraging thing was I wasn't sure if if, uh, golf was going to be on what I call the COVID OK list.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, And so (laughs) the other
2: thing I was watching was, you know, depending on how they flip. As you guys know, we've not been on the favorable side of government regulation. You know, the past ten years, as far as like when the Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, you know, we weren't eligible for relief. So I I was hedging my bet and thinking, A, I think this is gonna last longer, and B, I don't think we're gonna get a favorable bounce. The good thing was that it didn't last as long as I thought. Most of the country was back open and operating by the second week in May, and we did get favorable treatment that they said, hey, you, know, you can start opening golf courses under these restrictions. So as I kind of looked at it, I backed off my estimate and said, okay, now what I know on one May I said, I think we're going to be about 20 million rounds down by the end of the second quarter. And about that same time, NGF came out and probably one of the rare concurrences of Pellucid and NGF in my 20-year history was NGF did their math and they came up with 19 million. So that was kind of the snapshot um, at the end of May. Uh, And then I'll pause there for questions and then I'll tell you kind of what's happened in June and what I'm seeing for July and, and how that may play out. One of, one of the things that um, we were hoping and speculating,
0: and I don't know if this is a question, but I'd like to get kind of your take on it, Jim. Is um, we, uh, I get when I say we, I mean myself at Gallus, some of the courses we were talking with that as this was unfolding in end of March and April, and everything was super unsure, uh, although you know, uncertainty is a way of life right now, it seems. Um, a lot of what we talked about was how there maybe wasn't a better time of year for it to happen. Shoulder season that it wasn't necessarily impacting the warm weather states quite as much because they were coming out of season. And then the cold weather states weren't impacted as heavily because of um, not even some of them wouldn't have even been open that much in, in the end of March, beginning of April. So what, uh, in, in everything that you've looked at that way, I'm assuming that that's kind of played a role into you know, us, us pulling out of this in a, in a positive way, the way we have is that really it was kind of a, a lull in what, you know, rounds anyway, just that time of year, naturally.
2: Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, it, it, right now, if it plays out the way I think it's going to, it will be Rob, to your point, it'll be a glancing blow. So just for example, I've got some numbers here in front of me. If you think about the rounds contribution for the year, by month nationally. Now think this is the combination of those warm weather and cold weather seasons. Right. So In March, we do about 25 million rounds annually. In April, it ramps to 39 million. But really where it, it comes into play, so like May, June, July, 46, 48, 64. So we're in what I call apex month, or we just left apex month right. for golf in the United States. And that's the convergence of the North and the South at long daylight hours, et cetera. So you're absolutely right. If this truck had hit the golf industry in June or July, uh, the impact would have been about 1.5x. So you're absolutely right. I mean, if you had to pick your time, either this or the early fall, you know, would have been the ideal times to kind of have COVID hit, even though we don't want to obviously wish that on anybody. Well, can we talk about some of the recovery
0: then too, as we came into those apex type months, as we came yep. into the, the busier months, you know, we hear a lot, um, you know our, our t-sheet's packed we're busier than ever but i haven't heard a lot yet of of real rounds numbers i know that sometimes the t-sheet's packed for a lot of these courses but they're operating some of them are operating on a limited inventory instead of a tea t-time staggered at seven minutes eight minutes they're 12 minutes 15 minutes so their their inventory is less than what it is so even though the t-sheet may be packed they're not maybe booking as many rounds what's what's the reality what's happened this may june
2: july Yeah, that's a great question. So let me give you an anecdote here. So in, I guess it was May when they first opened the courses. So in Illinois, we were two people cart, no, no cart, two people cart 15 minute spacings. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going, okay, so that's open, but give me a break. I mean, it's hardly open if you think about the T-sheet. So I was out riding my bike one day and I rode around the Buffalo Grove golf course and there's like nobody on the course. So I get this bright idea. I'm going to go home and, and you know, call and book tea tee time. So I go home and the lady says, the only time I've got for you is 7.10. And I'm like, I was just riding around the golf course. And she said, Jim, do you realize when you are no carts, twosomes, and 15-minute spacings, you're not going to see anybody on the golf right. course. She right. said, we are absolutely booked. But she said, that's what it is. So you're right. I, and everybody was saying, well, I'm absolutely booked. But if you think about it, You've now taken with that restriction, you've taken the capacity of a golf course and shrunk it in half. Mm-hmm. And, and we were operating before this started about 53% utilization. So it makes sense to me. It's kind of like due to restrictions, we limited the capacity to half. it's now full. Right. But the fact of the matter is it isn't full from a revenue and rounds standpoint. It was just, it gave us the appearance of being full because we had compressed that. Now they subsequently went to carts allowed, you know, foursomes, two carts and they shrunk it down to 10 minute spacings. And so now we started to see the benefit from quote unquote full T sheet. It's like, now it's really starting to come back in the metrics. So, and Rob, you're absolutely right. In May, I'm listening to all this anecdotal evidence, and I'm saying if we're just solid booked up and all the rest of this stuff, I expect to see a double-digit bounce in rounds compared to May of 19. And so the data tech numbers came out, and it was a 7% increase. And I was like, eh, that doesn't sound like chock full. You know, we are just going nuts, turning them away at the gates type of thing. Right, And so I kind of looked at it, I said, okay, the good thing is, you know, 6% up, we gained back about 3 million rounds of that 20 that we were down. But my kind of assertion was, I want to see what happens in June. If we don't get a double digit bounce in June on rounds, then I'm not buying into the party. Um, fortunately, we did. We got a 14% increase of rounds in June, which picked up um, about... Uh, Uh, let me see, 16 versus three, picked up about 13 million rounds. So now we picked up about three in in, uh, May, we picked up about 13. So right now we're only sitting about three to four million rounds down. And I'm looking at it, I'm going, okay, so if July turns in another double digit, and I would even say because of the June strength, if July is at least 5% up, then we're in pretty good position to have visibility to getting back to what I call even. I think a very realistic and aggressive target for us is if we could survive COVID and come out of 20, even to 19, uh, we will have dodged a major bullet as an industry. So it takes you into what has to happen. What has to happen is if we get July greater than 5%, then all we need is a 1.5% increase each month for the balance of the year over a year ago, and we get back to even. And so from where I sit, I, I'm kind of liking that bet right now. I, a month ago, if you'd have talked to me, I would have, I would not have taken that bet with the June results and what I've seen in the July weather, which is basically flat. So weather is not going to be a hindrance or a help in July. Um, I, I'm kind of liking the bet right now to get back to even. All things aside,
0: revenue wise, you know, course, is talking about you know raising prices doing anything like that just that thrown out and aside if they just went with regular rack rates coming into season this balance in june should have should be producing
2: greater revenue for the course of the year as, as well yes or it produces greater revenue but not compared to last year so you're right so yeah. the rate is coming up as we move out of shoulder season here in the north but remember your comps as we call them Are going to be against last year which is the same ramp that you're going to get from last year but an important point that you bring up is everybody looked at this and they're using rounds as the benchmark to say hey how good is it the problem is that nobody takes rounds to the bank you know last time I checked the bank only accepts money money yeah (laughs) So the challenge is you look at the restrictions that were placed on the industry so first of all take out all your events so all the weddings and the shotgun starts and all that stuff, gone. Right, right. You take out your food and Bev, you take out your pro shop, and you've got some range revenue left, but unfortunately range revenue of those things is the smallest piece of it. Uh, and you take out a big part of your cart revenue. So mm-hmm. as you look at it, while people on the round side were getting healthy and it looks really good, you know, we've taken a fairly substantial hit in revenue. Now, what a lot of the courses that I'm talking to are telling me is they're saying, hey, Jim, on revenue, I'm just about back to even to last year. Uh, I'm a math guy. I have no clue how you take out events and food and beverage and pro shop and get back to even on revenue. But they're in the trenches and the guys who see the balance sheets every day. So I got to take their word for it. Um, But I do think we're going to take a revenue hit this year. Um, commensurate to the fact that they've taken out some of those those revenue departments that we've relied on in the past.
0: I mean I would hope that a lot of these courses in these cases not hope for the sake of people but for the sake of the courses financial health that I assume there's been some compensation in there in in payroll gross revenue might might be down but payroll might also be down significantly so their bottom line could potentially be up
2: with a with a lower top line yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, there's all sorts of things that that are in the cost basis that can be taken out in COVID. The challenge is that the biggest part of that cost is the maintenance of the golf course. Mm-hmm. So the only savings they really got was when they weren't, you know, able to go out and maintain the golf course. And most of our clients said, you know what, even when the state had us closed down, we were still mowing once a week, mm-hmm. <laughs> just hoping that there wasn't somebody out there, you know, lurking around looking you know, for the the random mower out there. So they said we were still doing some maintenance. But you're right, a a lot of them have taken fairly aggressive cost reductions uh, and managed that way. But I mean, the one thing, and unfortunately, and and people don't realize sometimes that I speak in hyperboles and people take it to heart. uh, We're going to see more golf courses close at the end of this year. I mean, there is just no other way around it because, by anyone's estimation, and we don't have a good number on this, probably 25 to 30% of the public access courses out there were operating with less than six months of cash flow. So you look at those courses and they were just on the bubble even when things were going well. Uh, Many of them have stayed in business, but I, I anticipate that as we close the season in the North up here, we've been closing about 175 to 200 a year I would not be surprised if that number jumps to two and a quarter to 250, just because they didn't have the financial wherewithal to weather a storm of the magnitude of COVID. Is there a type of course you think this is affecting the most? Um, that's a good one. I, I don't know. Um, I think about um, the ones that are most on the bubble. The way that we segment courses is by access type first. So private versus public. Mm -hmm. And then we take the public domain and we segment it into what we call learning and practice and regulation length. So learning and practice is your par threes, your executive courses, your odd 12-hole course, blah, 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 and nines less than 3,000 yards. Um, So that's group two. And then what we have left is public regulation. We separate that into what we call premium value and price. And that's based on where they fall on the price strata. So, Rob, you were mentioning being in San, in uh, San Diego. So, right. a premium course in San Diego is going to be like eighty dollars and up. Mm-hmm. A premium course here in Chicago is going to be sixty-four dollars up. And Kyle, I'd, where are you located? I'll, I'll do a Orlando. quick. So if Orlando. So in Orlando. In the
1: winter, it's a uh, buck fifty.
2: <laughs> yep, yep. So for you guys, because of the heavy seasonality, uh, our segmentation. You're right. You're going to be closer to Rob because we use highest rack rate. So we would be using winter rates for you guys. Yeah. So as I look at it, the ones, Rob, long answer to your short question, mm-hmm. um, the learning and practice facilities have more on the bubble from what we see. Um, so unfortunately, um, uh, Dell Radcliffe calls these the bunny slopes of golf, right. uh, and they are. But unfortunately, they're also the most susceptible. Um, so I think that learning and practice is probably going to take a hit. Um, what I see is that there are a number of public premiums who should be, but unfortunately what's happening is they're transacting, and the new owner is then repositioning the course as public value because he bought a $10 million golf course for five million bucks, so now he can run it on a different cost structure. So unfortunately, and the other thing that's happened is the munis used to occupy public price. They were affordable golf for the masses. They've migrated up into the value stream, most of them, and so I think the other place that's going to take a hit are the public price, because those are people who are out there who are offering affordable golf, but they're doing it on a shoestring budget. And a lot of times it's a mom and pop for a passion that has a passion for the game. But unfortunately, when passion meets finances, <laughs> finances win. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. So crystal ball in place. I've got a few questions related to crystal ball. One, let's kind of start, not so much with the financial picture or anything else for the rest of the year, but one of the things that's been kind of a golf industry in general initiative, um, in general with a lot of pieces going into this, has been how do we grow the game? Uh, how do we become more inclusive? And it sounds like based on this this picture, uh, even though golf has been the one thing that's been social distancing and maybe audiences have increased a little bit, it sounds like long term, it could be becoming more exclusive uh, o- over time based on this. I mean, what, how can somebody look at these numbers um, and, and what's going on and try to position their business within the golf industry to continue to grow the game and be more inclusive uh, based on, you know, any
2: advice you might have. Yeah. So, I mean, COVID is the ultimate grow the game program. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. I, it, it sounds morbid and I don't mean it that way. But oh. I mean, one, one way to grow the game is shut everything else down, which is pretty much what we've done. So barring that and understanding that it's not sustainable, because I mean, one of the things that's coming out of this is people are saying, hey, we're getting more rounds. And that's coming from higher frequency from existing and lapsed golfers as well as new players. Well, one of my main beefs for 20 years in the industry is we have such crappy tracking metrics that nobody can document and quantify new players. So when somebody says to me, hey, Jim, I'm seeing a lot of new faces around here. My question is, okay, have you captured them in your point of sale system? Mm-hmm. You, know, you know who your returning guests are. And if you were capturing the emails or even some unique identifier, a phone number, I give people in the industry a hard time. I said, for crying out loud, we order pizza every Friday night. The pizza place I order from knows me. They know how many times I've ordered and they know what types of pizza I've ordered. So when I call on Friday night, it's like, hey, Jim, how are you? Are you doing the 16-inch stuffed uh, spinach pizza again? And I keep telling the golf industry, we should know our customers the same way. And we should know who's new. And we should get their email address and we should start communicating with them. So long answer to your short question there was, people are saying that we're attracting new people to the game because they can't do anything else. I'm not convinced that that's happening, but let's just assume that it is. So now the question becomes, they're coming and playing the game. They're getting some enjoyment out of it. How do we keep them here? You know, when football starts back up, when their kids are playing sports, et cetera, how do we keep them here? And my sense is, you know, I've long been a a fan of what I call um, two versions of golf. There's competitive golf and recreational golf. Uh, And and the industry uses the B word to scare people away, bifurcation. It's like, oh, we don't want to bifurcate the industry. It's like, look, folks, people are already playing two versions of golf. There's the USGA version of golf. And last time I checked, there's only about 3 million handicapped golfers in the U.S., so for another 18 million golfers out there, they are not playing competitive golf it, with their USGA rule book and their handicap and their scores, et cetera. You know how do we make it enjoyable? And how we make it enjoyable is what I call relaxed rules. Uh, so my sense is, when somebody gets out on the golf course, you know, make it as easy as possible to enjoy. You know, if your ball's in a divot and you're out there, and this is the second time you've played, roll the friggin' ball. You know, <laughs> there's no honor and no medal to be given for trying to figure out your second time out, you know, how to hit a ball out of a divot. In the same way I've encouraged the equipment manufacturers and said, you know, every other sport has, you know, we got metal bats in baseball. We got outsized rackets in, in tennis. We've got all these things that take advantage of technology to help somebody enjoy the sport more quickly. And what people say is, well, Jim, you know, you'll, you'll ruin the heritage. I said, no, you won't. I said, Let them get the ball in the air and the rest of that stuff. They're going to get better. And eventually, they're going to want to start playing competitively against other golfers with rules. And when they do that, then they have to be using conforming equipment. Mm -hmm. It's the on-ramp. Recreational equipment and relaxed rules are the on-ramp for the competitive game and and the historical legacy that everybody's trying to protect. They don't have to conflict with each other. So in my mind, player development is about how do we get people on the course, get them to enjoy it quickly by not making it so stuffy. Let them take their, you know, their portable music with them. You know, let them be doing social media on the course. Let them wear their jeans, all that stuff. Uh, And and the the industry has just kind of fought that tooth and nail. And, And my colleague, Stuart Lindsay, the final component that he hits on that I never thought of before, but he's absolutely right is, you know, a better rental program. I mean, one of the barriers when you say to somebody is, Do you want to come play golf? It's like, Do I have to go buy equipment? Yeah, you got to go buy $1,500 worth of equipment while you figure out whether you really like this game or not. It's like rental programs. Stuart ran a, a, several golf courses and he said we had self liquidating rental programs. He said we would go get the equipment from Ping or a Cushnet. He said, we would rent those out during the summer to our beginners. And at the end of the year, if they liked the set they were playing, they could buy it. And if they didn't like it, he said, we could sell it you know, off market for 50%. He said, we only paid 70% for it. By the time you took the rental income out of it and what we got in the liquidation on the back end, he said, we always broke even if not make money. It's like simple um, idea.
0: Um, very good.
2: So that's, that's Jim's. If I were going to do player development, you know, I would, you know, just open the gates and say, look, we're going to make this easy. We're going to make it affordable. We're not going to worry so much about the rules of golf. Uh, The, the analogy I use that people laugh about is I said, if somebody showed up and I owned a golf course and they had a Coke bottle on the end of a stick and they said, I want to go play 18 holes. I would say that's $40 play at pace, do not destroy my golf course and have fun. Right. Yep. And the way I'm hitting the ball lately, just about anybody could beat me
0: with a Coke bottle on a stick. So <laughs> despite what
2: my index might say. Yep. Yep. So those are the types of things, you know, I think that we're going to have to do. I'll be very interested. We do the annual survey. So I'll be very interested in February of next year. Everybody's saying to me that we've got all these new golfers. Uh, And so we will measure at the end of next year um, who is new to the sport, how many uh, golfers we gained or lost, and whether frequency went up. So the other thing, you know, that I see, one of the other things we can do in player development that I talk about is a lot of people will try it one or two times. And so they kind of come to this level of one or two frequency. At that point, you either have to get them to a higher frequency Our median frequency is 10 rounds a year. You've either got to get them up closer to 10 rounds a year where shot and hole and round euphoria sets in. So for like me, I've been playing for 20 some years. I'm still a mid-90s golfer, but I hit enough good shots during the round that that's all I remember at the end of the day. Right. So we've got to get them from that one, two up into bumping up into eight or nine rounds a year. And once we get them there, they tend to stick. But the people that, that stay in that one to two rounds a year, they are all candidates for dropping out of the sport. So one of the other things I look at is what's the frequency distribution. And if we got a bunch of new golfers, but they all settled into one or two rounds, I say, you know, it's just a matter of time before we're going to lose those folks based on history. Gotcha.
1: Kyle. Well, that sort of ties into a question I had at a sort of a 60,000 foot level Jim. if you envision a classic kind of stock market graph, Uh, It sounds like, you know, for years and years, we had course closures accelerating and rounds played decelerating or going down. Prior to COVID, had those trends sort of stabilized or are they still on their respective inclines? Because I know this will obviously be a blip in that year-end snapshot that you refer to.
2: Yeah. So the trends had continued, but the rate of descent or rate of change had altered. So an example Um, Up to about 2015, we were losing 3% of our golfer base annually, which anybody who's been in a consumer business, losing 3% of your your consumer base annually is not good. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got from almost bumping 30 million golfers in 2002 to where we sit today at about 21 million golfers. Um, But the rate of decline last year's was less than a percent. So the good news is we've stabilized in that the rate of descent of the consumer base has gone from 3% per annum to 1% per annum. Um, And we're leveling out, Uh, we're stubbornly clinging to about 21 million right now. Along with that, the rounds decline was about a percent a year, and the good news was you were saying, okay, if my consumer base is going down 3%, my rounds are only declining by 1%, what that means is I'm losing my light consumers. So if you follow, if you were losing median consumers, golfers who play 10 rounds a year, right. those two lines would be in tandem. You lose 3% of the golfers, you lose 3% of the rounds because you're losing 10 frequency golfers. When one's going down at three and rounds only going down at one, what that means is we are losing a disproportionate number of people playing less than five rounds a year. Hmm. So that's a good thing. And that, that line has also shallowed from about 1.2% a year to about 6 tenths of a percent. So, you know, analytics guys like me, you know, we keep track of tents, but it's 1%. As far as the closure rate, this is one that's just baffled me. I've looked at this industry, uh, and and we've not been the picture of health. And I've said, we've been losing about a half a percent of the supply a year. That's now accelerated to about a percent. But to get healthy, we should be contracting about 2% a year. So despite as bad as all the financials are, we still are not able to close courses at the rate that I think is commensurate to what we need to get back to health. And what I'm seeing is it was really easy to plant a golf course back in the day because a golf course is an easy thing to get behind. You're know, you gonna take 200 acres of green space and you're gonna recreate across it. It's like everybody in the community is all for that. The problem with taking them out is they're not dry cleaners. You can't just close a dry cleaner, or a strip mall, and put another business in that little box. So now you've got 200 acres of green space and trying to take it out of play gets the attention of all sorts of people. And a lot of those were built with real estate developments and those real estate developments came with covenants. And those restrictive covenants said, you can't take the golf course out of here without an act of Congress. So what's impeding our progress in in contracting the supply to reflect the consumer base and demand is it's a lot harder to plow a golf course than it is to plant it. Yeah. So I keep saying this has got to accelerate. Uh, and, and what I'm thinking is COVID will be one of those accelerators that the math will just not work in this thing. But the challenge is we still have to figure out if those courses are not financially viable, what does that space become? And everybody has like a belly button, everybody has an opinion on every single one of those courses that need to close due to financial reasons.
1: Yeah. So well, I think, we, go go ahead, well. I've, Yeah, I've
0: got just kind of one last question and it might be a good spot for us to get close to wrapping up this conversation with. And that's, as this year unfolds, one of my um, concerns, I, I guess you would call it, is even though the golf economy has gotten the balance, things look good, feels like a pretty safe bet that we're going to wind up with a decent uh, 2020 in the, in the, in the golf world. I'm concerned about the economy in general, eventually, you know, bleeding over into the golf world and, and what that looks like. And, and even though you said you're kind of betting on things going well, the, uh, the remainder of this year, what's, what's the crystal ball tell you, Jim, you know, where, where are we at for, the rest of 2020, all things considered, you know, there's not, you know, I, I forget, I think we got past the murder hornets. I think that that went away and that <laughs> seems to be okay. Um, I, you know, as long as there's not nuclear attack or, or anything crazy going on, but yeah. 2020 has been 2020. So who knows? Um, considering kind of a normal rest of this year, weather-wise and everything else, what's, what's it look like it's going to shape up for, for everything and, and then maybe even moving forward into next year, if we're to learn from where we're at, how does, in your opinion, how's the golf industry set itself up for a successful 2021?
2: Yeah, great question. Hard question. Uh, I think it was Yogi Barrett that said, predictions are hard, especially about the future. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so as I think about, I mean, what does 2021 bring sitting here on the, what is it? The 6th of August in the midst of COVID still. So a couple of macro things that I think will shape our industry in 2021. Um, The first one is kind of what does the employment situation look like? I mean, everybody has an opinion as to whether we're going to get a V-shaped recovery, a swoosh recovery. Nike's loving that. You know, it's like we're starting to name recoveries after their uh, corporate logo, which is just instead of the classic V, you're just getting kind of this long tail to this thing. Um, So I think that that will that will be interesting to see how it plays out, because at the end of the day, golf is a game of discretionary time and income. Uh, That is an irrefutable fact. And Rob, I think you mentioned in the the pre-call, one of the things that's interesting here, I I, I hate to say it, but I'm an analyst by heart. I mean, we are retrenching into you know, the sport that we used to be, which is all these people who are out of work or who are working minimum wage on the front lines of COVID, you know, and putting their lives on the line, they don't have discretionary time and money in the COVID era. So as I think about it, what's going to happen, depending on how long this lasts, you know, those golfers who didn't have an abundance of discretionary time and income that we were able to attract in normal uh, or even improving economic times, I think those people are gonna be hard stretched uh, to do that. So if this thing takes a really long time, I think we're gonna lose that part of our consumer base and it will retard kind of our bounce in 21. I'm hopeful that as those jobs come back and the economy gets back on its footing, that we won't lose those people forever in that kind of they fell out of the golf spectrum if they do, then we return to our roots, which is, you know, golf is not democratized. It is, you know, people who have discretionary time and income, which are white collar employees like, you know, the three of us here on this, this call. So I, I think the employment and the economy bounce on employment is going to have quite an effect. Um, the second one that I will touch on and I will go no further than touching on it is we have this small event coming up in November. It's called a presidential election and all sorts of other elections. We would be naive and remiss to not say that the golf industry will be impacted one way or the other based on the outcome of that election in November. Uh, So as I look at it, again, it is a game of discretionary time and money, and our consumer base um, sits in, in part of the political spectrum. So if people start doing things with their discretionary income, they will change behavior. They always have and they always will. Um, outside of that, as I look at kind of just the, the game, forgetting about the two macro trends, and that's a big forgetting about. Um, we're finding support in the consumer base somewhere between 20 and 21 million golfers. That's encouraging to me. Um, you had asked earlier, you know, how do we grow the game? I don't think we've solved the puzzle as to how we grow it. So if somebody says to me, do you think, you know, we're going to now start an ascent back to 22, 23, 24 million, Not unless we solve some of the issues that I brought up, as I said, you know, here are the restrictions and things we need to uh, get rid of. The good thing is that our core consumers continue to play. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, our rounds decline didn't match our our consumer base decline. So those golfers aren't going anywhere. The small canary in the coal mine on that is right now the baby boomers are carrying the game. They have grown into an age group where they have discretionary time, they grew up with the game, they love it, and they're increasing their frequency like we said they would. The challenge is the generations following them, Gen X and Millennials, are not taking up the game of golf the way we did in our 20s to 30s. So now you have two scenarios. Either, the unlikely scenario, you know, when they get to be 35, something goes off in their biological clock, that says I can't play softball and basketball and football anymore, I think I'll take up golf, that would be nice and would help us. Or because they didn't grow up with the game, we're going to have to start educating 35 and 40-year-olds to the game of golf. I mean, my positioning has always been, we should say we own recreational sports participation from 35 on. We are the only sport with a legitimate calling card that said, you could take up this game at 35, and you can play it for 40 more years or more. And you can't do that with lacrosse. You can't do that with basketball. The knees wear out. So I I really think if somebody, you know, handed me a marketing plan and said, what's the marketing plan for golf, I would say, we own 35 and up for participatory sport in the United States. That's what we want to dominate. So I think the second thing is, as I look at that, I think that the consumer base and the rounds fundamentals are stable, but I don't see any big hockey stick for us because we don't have the programs in place, you know, to, to execute that. And I see more courses going out of business in 2021, which will actually make the health of the surviving courses slightly better. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're seeing a little bit of pricing power in the market too, as well. Two, two and a half percent a year, and we haven't had that for years. So As much as everybody complains about online tea times and barter and all the rest of that crap, it's like we're seeing the pricing going up. And if all that stuff was taking the industry to hell in a handbasket, we should be seeing the average rate going down because of all that discounting. And the ability for the consumer to play the arbitrage. So, and I didn't mean to, to introduce no, that no, controversial no, I think, topic. <laughs> no, the I was going to say end we, the, uh, we could be here for another hour. We, we could. So, we and could. <laughs> and for
0: episode two with Jim K. <laughs> no, I uh, I appreciate that, and I think it highlights one of the points you made earlier. And you know, for course operators listening to this, you know, please by all means. Take all the steps you need to get more connected to your customers, build loyal behavior, start generating loyalty type trends, consider programs that when it comes time for them to make that choice in your market as to where to go play, you're limiting their choices because of how you interact with them. So I think that that really should be one of the biggest takeaways from all of this is at the end of the day, generating loyal behavior is the best thing you can do for your business at this point. So,
2: yeah, when I came into this industry 20 years ago, I said, the way I read the tea leaves, the consumer base is not going to grow. So, I said, if you're going to grow your facility, your only means of growth is to go steal somebody else's consumer. Right. And the golf course operator's like, Jim, you can't say that. We're a collegial industry. You know, we've always worked together, you know, and Joe's tractor gets stuck in the mud. I go get it. I said, that's great. Go get his tractor. But I said, if there's only 29 million golfers and it isn't growing and you want to grow your business, I said, the only way you're going to do is take somebody else's customer. And you do that by knowing them better and catering to them and giving them a better experience. And 20 years has proven me right.
0: Get his tractor, but while you're in the parking lot, hand out about 40 coupons.
2: (laughs) Get the license plate.
0: (laughs) Very good.
1: Uh, Well, Jim, if uh, if a reader or listener wanted to sort of unpack this a little further and reach out to you, get some of your uh, industry research reports, the Plucid perspective, what's the best way for somebody to to, to engage with your, your company?
2: Yeah, I appreciate it. Let me give you the 30-second commercial. So www.pellucidcorp.com has all of our services out there. It also has the most current reports that are in the public domain. So it's a good place to drive by once a month just for information. Um, I can be reached at real easy, jim at pellucidcorp.com. So uh, I handle most of the inbound emails, and it's not a, a flood that I can't handle daily. So either to the website or email me, and we would love to talk to you and educate you.
0: And for those of you that didn't write that down quickly enough, that'll be in the show notes too. You'll be able to see it either in the podcast. that all information will be there. Or if you watch us on YouTube, it'll be on the screen following uh, me blabbering on here at the end, the way I tend to. So Jim, thanks a lot. It was really yeah. a joy having you on and talking to you. Appreciate Incredibly the Incredibly insightful. Good.
2: I enjoy how, it. And uh, how yeah. about we
1: have you back in February when the, your snapshot of the previous year is wrapped up.
2: I, I would love to do that. Uh, the stuff that I've predicted in the past, most of the time when I follow the numbers, it generally turns out fairly similar. So I would be happy to have that conversation in February. It can Wonderful. be the I told you so episode. So, no,
1: <laughs> just, just how it turned out. <laughs> no. Numbers don't lie. Numbers don't lie. <laughs> Very good. Well, Very good. Uh, I'm Kyle Taylor. He's Rob Hoffman. Thank you, uh, Jim. Very good. Copenhaver. Perfect. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, guys.